You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on November 9th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Family Matters. Live music by Andy Miller. Our first speaker tonight is Christy Heron. Christy has lived in Alaska for the last 35 years, but she was originally born and raised in Iowa City, Iowa. As part of a very large extended Irish Catholic family, she spent every weekend, holiday, and summer vacation with grandparents, aunts and uncles, and cousins, celebrating birthdays, anniversaries, baptisms, confirmations, and whatever else could be used as an excuse to get together. She realized that there was a big world out there beyond Iowa, and after graduating from college, she moved west to take a seasonal job with the Park Service in Montana. She spent the next several years as a Park Service seasonal, which culminated in her getting a job at the Klondike Gold Rush Historic Park in Skagway. Please welcome to the stage, Christy Heron. I met Chaz in May of 1981 when I went to Skagway to be a backcountry ranger on the Chilkoot Trail. He was one of the other trail rangers and uh, it wasn't long before we became much more than just co-workers. And we decided we wanted to spend the winter together traveling in New Zealand. So we um, set about getting our tickets and we came across an ad from Pan American Airlines uh, advertising a two for the price of one airline ticket uh, to Auckland, New Zealand for $800. And this was a fabulous deal and so we jumped right on it and we got our tickets. And when we were reading the ad, we did notice the little part at the bottom that said, you must be related in order to get this fare. <laughs> but they never asked us if we were related when we got our tickets. So we figured it probably wasn't important. So fall comes and we start driving uh, down. It's a nice long drive. We have lots of time to plan and dream about all the great things we're gonna do when we get to New Zealand. But we also have lots of time to think about and start worrying a little bit about whether or not we should be worried about this need to be related requirement. So, um, we uh, don't want to call Pan Am and say, hey, did you really mean that? that? <laughs> so instead, we call my mom, and we ask her to ask her friend, the travel agent, uh, whether or not he thought this was going to be a problem. And uh, he said that, um, you know, if it's a requirement of getting the ticket and you show up there with your uh, tickets and your passports with different last names, they're definitely gonna ask for proof that you're related. So uh, now we're really worried, but um, we don't really know what to do. I mean, what can we do? So we just keep driving towards um, LA, which where we're flying out of, and um, pretty soon we're driving through Nevada. <laughs> 
And as we go through Lake Tahoe, we see the little chapel by the lake on the side of the road. So we pull into the parking lot and we have a long and really serious discussion about whether or not it would be a good idea <laughs> for us to get a little quickie wedding and then just get it annulled when we came back. So neither one of us ever wanted to be married and we'd only known each other for six months and so we figured it probably wasn't that good of an idea really uh, if we were going to be really getting married but that it might actually be an okay business proposition. <laughs> so we decide if we just um, we can go inside and we'll see. And if it's not too expensive, we'll go ahead and get married. And then when we come back, um, neither one of us will contest the, agree the uh, annulment. And we will never, ever, ever tell anyone what we've done. <laughs> so uh, we shake hands on it. <laughs> and we go inside. Uh, the minister comes out and we ask him how much it costs to get married and he says, oh, $50. And we look at each other and go, wow, 50 bucks, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, well, okay, we'll get married. And <laughs> so uh, he asks us when we want to get married and we're like, oh, now would be good. If that works for you, it works for us. And so um, he looks a little surprised, but he goes and he gets his wife to be our um, witness and come, they come back out and we proceed to uh, get married in our blue jeans and flannel shirts and we're in the field of daisies diorama. Um, and we walk out the door, marriage certificate in hand. It's like, woohoo, problem solved. So we get in the car and we drive to the airport and we check in and everything goes smoothly and we fly to New Zealand and we're there for three and a half months hiking and backpacking and having all sorts of great adventures and following, falling deeper and deeper in love uh, with, uh, throughout the whole time. So then that's over, time to go back to work. We get back to Skagway. We talk to each other about the fact that it's now time to get an annulment, but you know, we don't know anything about getting an annulment. You know? <laughs> that was just sort of something we thought we could do, but we didn't know anything. So um, we, you know, and it's hard to find information in Skagway that time of year, and we're busy and we're very happy, so we just let it slide. And we let it slide for a year. At which point, I'm feeling terribly guilty because um, I'm really close with my family, especially my mother, and I've never kept any, well, hardly anything from them, <laughs> uh, especially nothing this big, and so it's time for us to make a decision. So um, we start thinking about it, it's like, you know, this isn't gonna be an annulment. I mean, it's been way too long and this marriage has certainly been uh, consummated. So um, we're really talking about divorce. But, you know, we're happy and in love and divorce seems weird. So we decide, we, okay, we just need to be married then and we need to tell people. But 
being married seemed weird also because, well, many of you know, usually when you get married, you sort of have a ceremony and you commit to each other in the rest of your life. And, you know, we hadn't done that. We committed to a cheap airline ticket and, <laughs> and three and a half months together. So our solution was we would have a wedding ceremony. We'd have our own wedding ceremony. We didn't need to do the, the legal thing because that was already all taken care of. So, ooh. So, <laughs> so we have our ceremony. Uh, we invite our friends and family. Um, we tell my mother the truth before we get married. She cries. She's heartbroken. We tell Chaz's parents they're ecstatic. <laughs> Mostly because it meant we weren't living in sin up to that point. And um, anyway, so we had our own wedding ceremony where we committed to each other and to our lives together. And um, uh, it's not a path that we would recommend to young couples starting out today, but um, it's actually, we were lucky and it's worked out really well for us. And we, uh, in just two weeks, we'll be celebrating what we call our 33 slash 35 wedding anniversary. And just one more thing, Pan Am never asked us for proof that we were related. Our next speaker is Keeley Kent. Keeley was born and raised in Deerfield, Illinois. She's been in Juneau a year and a half with her husband Seth and dog Skagit. Uh, I should have asked you, Skagit? She came to Juno for a job, the lack of traffic, the abundance of hiking, and the opportunity to wear a raincoat every day. She works in fisheries management. She keeps busy hiking and playing hockey. Please help me welcome Keeley to the stage. I grew up in suburban Illinois on a quiet cul-de-sac. My parents raised my siblings and I on the idea that if you were gonna go for something, you should go all in. My dad, especially, tried to foster this in my brother and sister and I. He lived up to the idea of go big or go home. These experiences with my father often occurred on days where my mom was busy, my dad was in charge of watching us. And he always said those five little words where you knew you should start getting nervous. Now, don't tell your mom that we're gonna climb up the second story bedroom window onto the roof. It was a blustery Midwestern winter day and the snow had piled up below. He pointed down and showed clearly that you could jump. As I looked over the edge and thought about what it would be like to break every bone in my body, he instructed us, it was simple, you just had to jump and then you know we'd see what would happen. <laughs> see, my father thought these experiences would help us figure out what we were made of, how to be brave, take risks, and you know, build courage. He shared these lessons with us through his love of fireworks. <laughs> fireworks were illegal in Illinois, but his passion ran deep. <laughs> he would drive over the border to Wisconsin, where they were legal, and load up the car with a year's worth of entertainment. He started us off small with Roman candles, working our way up to those big boxes where you light a single fuse and 18 cannons go off. 
And one day, he beckoned me over and said, let me teach you something really cool. This did not make me feel good. He explained that it was very simple. All you had to do was hold the bottle rocket in your teeth. Now, now not too firm, but uh, firm enough so that it didn't fall. And remember to close your eyes before you light the fuse. I thought quickly about what it would be like to not have any eyebrows for the next few months, burning off my eyelashes, probably too. Um, and he could see that I was holding on to some fear. <laughs> so he put his hand on my shoulder, looked at me in the eyes, and explained, this will really impress the neighborhood kids. <laughs> he was really great at words of encouragement in times of nervousness and fear. During the winters, these lessons and how to be brave and get over your fears were held on the sledding hill. On the weekends, my father would take us over to the local mall, and he knew if you went around back and climbed over the no trespassing sign, you'd find yourself at the top of a very big hill. As we, my siblings and I, stood on top of the hill and, and looked down, we took in the steepness and the length of this hill and the fact that it ended in open water. <laughs> As my father could see, we were taking it all in. He came over and handed us an air mattress. <laughs> As we tried to figure out what the air mattress was for, he explained, uh, the hill was so steep that if you hit a single bump, you would easily go airborne. And the air mattress provided a a necessary buffer between your face and the ground when you return to Earth. This did not make me feel any better. As I looked down and observed the open water at the bottom of the hill, I asked my dad, that's not frozen, is it? He looked down and laughed and said, no, it's definitely not frozen. But in the event of a water landing, your air mattress will act as a personal flotation device. <laughs> Be sure to hold on to it when you go down the hill, and if you get bucked off, well, all bets are off. <laughs> During these summers with my father, we would take out the sailboat. It was a small pontoon boat with a jib sail in front and a mainsail in back. And as kids, we had small responsibilities on the boat, manning the jib sail in front. You know, nothing you could mess up. But as we got older, we got more responsibility, like learning how to set up the boat and how to man the mainsail, steer the rudders. One day, when it was just my father and I down at the beach, I set up the boat and looked up, noticing the darkened clouds of a Midwestern summer storm coming on. This is one of those moments where I stood at the beach thinking, I have an idea of how this is go, but you know, let's give it a shot. Dad, there's a storm coming over. I think maybe today's not a good day for sailing. He looked at the clouds and at the boat and said, I think we have time to make a quick run for it. Besides, thunderstorms mean that the winds are going to be really good. <laughs> so despite my better judgment, we launched the boat and we sailed out onto Lake Michigan. I was manning the mainsail and on the rudders, and the wind started to pick up. It pushed the mainsail pretty taut, and I felt the pull against the main line in my hand. As I noticed the wind picking up, the waves also started to pick up. 
I watched the waves get bigger and bigger, and every once in a while, the nose of one of our pontoons would dive under the water. If you've ever gone sailing, this is not what you want to happen. It's a really easy way to quickly flip your boat. So as the fear and nervousness built in my chest as I watched the storm build around us, I, my calmest voice, suggested to my father that perhaps he take over and get us back to shore. He shook his head, though, and said, you know how to sail this boat, and the only way you'll ever figure out how to sail it out of a storm is if you sail it out of a storm. This is that chance. <laughs> Thought about it for a minute and gave it another shot. Tried to explain the physics of being on a sailboat with a giant metal mast in the middle of a body of water with a lightning storm approaching. This did not sway him. Because he knew at that moment that if I gave up, I wouldn't make it any further than that. But if he pushed me just a little bit more, I'd figure out what I was made out of. So I tacked the boat. We sailed back to shore. The fastest I've ever sailed. It's helpful when there's a thunderstorm around you. We crash landed on the beach and you know, made it out of that storm okay. And I think back to these moments with the bottle rocket between my teeth, sliding down the hill into the open body of water, sailing out of the thunderstorm. Nowadays, when, my life, when I'm thinking about a big change or a challenge or something like moving across the country or signing up for mudrooms. <laughs> so thanks, Dad. Thanks for teaching me courage. And I think it was pure luck that no one ever got hurt. Our next speaker is India Busby. India is a 20-year-old girl who is currently a student at the University of Alaska Southeast and works for the admissions team there. She likes to think she's really funny, but realistically tells really bad jokes. She's young, hip, and funky fresh, and loves to eat Oreos while driving and blasting one direction in the car. Please welcome India to the stage. If there's one thing that my aunt hates the most, is liars. Um, and I say this because I am probably one of the biggest liars in my family. And I mostly, and I mostly do it to cover my ass. Like, you know, like I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to die. Like, I'm not, I'm not about that life, you know? And so basically, this actually happened a couple months ago. Um, so it's pretty recent. But I just got my license. And, um, and I don't have a car, so one of my really good friends um, had offered me to drive her car over the weekend. And I was like, oh yeah, like this is super rad, I get to finally have this freedom that like I haven't had, you know, like, and I'm just really excited about it. So, um, so the whole weekend I'm like driving her car and I'm just like enjoying my life and thinking I have all this freedom. And, and you know, my friend Elizabeth, who's actually here right now, um, so she actually texted me and wanted to hang out. So I was like, okay, sure, like I'll come get you. And I'm like, where do you live? And she's like, Fritz Cove. And I'm like, oh, okay, I can do Fritz Cove. And so I go to her house, and I, the second I pulled into her driveway, I knew 
that something bad was going to happen. Like, I had this feeling that I was like, ah, you know, maybe it'll be fine. I'll be okay. Um, so we go to, out to lunch, then we come back, and she, like, and I let her drive the car on the way back. So, like, I half blame Elizabeth, but I don't at the same time. Sorry, Elizabeth. Um, so, anyway, so basically, she, like, pulls into her driveway, and she's like, okay, I'm going to go inside now. And I'm like, okay, like, have a good night. So she goes back into her apartment, and... Um, and when I was pulling out of the driveway, actually, when I went to go pick her up, like, she had to help me, like, not crash the car. Um, so I didn't have that help. <sighs> so as I was backing out of the driveway, I hit a tree. And the sign that, like, has, like, the house number um, hit the back windshield. Yeah, that's what I did too. And so, um, and at first, like, I thought I was, like, imagining it. Like, I was like, ooh, like, I don't know what just happened. And so I, like, turned around and, like, my mouth is, like, wide open. And I'm like, oh, of course this would happen to me. Like, of course this would. So um, I kind of just sit in the car and I kind of want to cry. And I kind of did cry. And then, um, and then I called my grandma. And, of course, like, my grandma's, like, this really old lady. And, of course, like, the last thing she wants to hear is, like, hey, grandma, like, crash a person's car and it's not my own and I don't have insurance and you know and because I don't drive I really don't drive. so you know I didn't I didn't figure like I needed it so um, <laughs> mistake number one and so basically I call my grandma and she's like freaking out and she's like what were you doing like what made you think and I was like listen grandma we all make mistakes and <laughs> And she was like, damn right you do. And so I was like, oh, all right. Um, and the one thing I told her was like, do not tell my aunt. Like, do not tell my aunt. And she was like, I'm not going to say anything. So I call Elizabeth. She comes out. We go to Home Depot. And I'm like sitting in the parking lot crying. as She goes pipe for the tarp. And, um, and my mom calls. And my mom actually moved to Portland a couple years ago. So like, she's not here. So, um, so, I, so she calls. And I answer the phone. And I'm like crying. She's like, oh my god, like, what's going on? And I was like, mom, I was driving this girl's car. And I like, crashed into a tree. And the back windshield's broken. And she just starts laughing. And it's like, why are you laughing at me? I don't understand. And she's like, you're just going to look back at this and just start laughing at yourself. And I'm like, I'm not laughing now. Like, I don't understand. Like, that was awful, awful, awful. And so the thing with my mom is like she has a big mouth and I guess like mother like daughter I suppose because like I have a big mouth too but like the thing with my mom is you have to warn her like do not tell blah 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 you know like don't tell people but like of course I forgot the warning I forgot the one thing and um, so a couple weeks so I take this car back to my house and like and my uncle starts noticing and he's like oh like whose car is that like ooh, I don't want that in my driveway and, uh, and he was like, India, like, what happened to the back windshield of this car? And my aunt's in the living room, and she's there too, and, you know, and, and I just look at my aunt, and I look at my uncle, and I was like, the owner did it. I have to go fix it. She's out of town, so I, I have to go and fix it. So she did it. It wasn't, it wasn't me. I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with it. And, uh, <laughs> and like, I, could, I knew that they were sensing something was wrong. Like, they were like... <laughs> Uh, you're a little like weird about this, but it's fine. So they go to Portland, um, and surprise, they like went to go visit my mom, and like, <laughs> and didn't tell me. So, um, so you know, and I didn't, even, I had no clue this was going on. So, and they were gone for like a while, um, and then the next thing I know, like, 
I get this call from my mom and she's like, she knows. And I was like, what do you mean she knows? And she's like, auntie knows. I didn't know she didn't know. You didn't tell me. And I was like, why, why did you tell her in the first place? Like, now she knows. Now I have to confess I wasn't ready. Like, I just was not ready. And so I didn't want to tell her, like, oh, this is going to cost me $700. Like, the owner's pissed at me. Like, what am I supposed to do? You know, and now I'm going to die. And I'm going to, like, and then I was thinking, like, I have to think of, like, where I have to live now. Like, I have to crash on Katie's boat. Maybe Sarah's couch. Like, maybe Asia's floor. I don't know. And so, you know, I'm, like, thinking about all these things. And then finally, like, I called her. I, it was time to come out. Like, it was just time to break it to her. So I, I called her, and I was like, hey, I have a confession. And she's like, mm-hmm. And I was like... Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty hot, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty bad one. And she's like, mm-hmm, what is it? Mm-hmm. And I was like, um, I was like, you know that car I've been driving? She's like, uh-huh. I was like, um, I crashed the back windshield of the car. She's like, so it wasn't the owner. I was like, no, it wasn't. And you could just like, but it's like, she thought I didn't know that she knew. You know, but it's like, so I called her out on it and I was like, you know, like, why are you acting like you don't know? And she was like, she was like, I was just waiting for you to confess. She's like, what do I tell you all the time? And I was like, you hate liars. And she's like, and what did you just do? And I was like, I lied. And she's like, mm hmm. And so then, <laughs> you know, and it's, and like, and I have to remember, like, I don't know. And it just like made me like think, like, even though my aunt hates liars and her niece is a very big liar. I know that no matter what, she'll love me, <laughs> so I think so, or hope so. Anyway, just remember, just don't lie. <laughs>Our fourth speaker of the evening, her name is Jess Brown. She's been happy to call the Juno community her family for the past eight years, first with her Jesuit volunteer family that she came up to Juno with, later with her Zach Gordon family, where she worked for several years, perfecting the art of sneaking vegetables into foods with teens and bribing kids with ping pong games, and now her, with her CBJ family as the employee wellness coordinator for our municipal and hospital employees. Tonight, she's missing out on her rock dump climbing family, where she teaches a women's class every week. Please help me welcome Jess to the stage. So growing up, I never knew my biological father. My mom got pregnant with me pretty young, and they decided to get married, but by the time I was one, they were already separated. When my mom later remarried, her new husband and his family, the Browns, became my family. So since I always had lots of family around me, and also because I'm pretty fiercely independent, it never occurred to me that I was missing out on anything or anyone. However, in high school, I started getting a little curious about my biological father. I had a hunch he was still in the Cleveland area, mainly because people just don't leave Cleveland. <laughs> so I looked him up in the phone book, because we still use them then, and, um, and I remember realizing that he lived on the same street as one of my cl classmates, just a couple towns over. So I debated what to do with this information, but ultimately, I didn't act on it. Um, but I kind of like just knowing it, just knowing that if I ever needed to, I could get a hold of him. So I tucked that address and phone number in the back of my head and went about my life. 
About 10 years later, I'm getting into my 20s, and I'm starting to realize that it might be kind of helpful to know what's in the other half of my DNA. Things like where my family's from and um, the other half of my family health history and if I have any siblings that I don't know about. So I take to Google to look up my biological father's contact information. And luckily, he hadn't moved in the past 10 years. He was still at that same address with that same phone number. So one night, I take a couple deep breaths, and I call. I dial. Um, a woman answers the phone. Hi, may I please speak with Kent? Uh, no, he's busy right now. Uh, can I take your number, and he'll call you back? At this point, he's a complete stranger. I'm not about to give him my phone number. So, uh, so I say, no, no, that's OK. I'll, I'll call back some other time. And I hang up. But then I start thinking, if I don't take advantage of this adrenaline rush that I've got going right now, I don't know when I will. So I redial. The same woman answers. This time, she's getting a little more irritated. And I insist that, when I insist that it's important that I talk to Kent, uh, she's like, well, what could be so important? I'm on the other line here. I hesitate for a second, and I almost back out again. Um, and then somehow I blurt out, well, well I, I think I'm his daughter, and I really need to talk to him. <laughs> so I hear her pull the phone away from her head and yell, Kent? A woman's on the phone, she says she's your daughter. <laughs> Not quite the way I had imagined this conversation starting. But nevertheless, a groggy man gets on the phone. Hi, uh, my name is Jessica, and well, I think I'm your daughter, and I just have some questions I want answered. Um, silence. So I start rambling a little bit here. Um, you know, I'm not interested in a relationship necessarily. I just ha have some things I want to know about our family, what part of the world they're from, um, you know, if I have any siblings, if there are any conditions in our family that I should know about. Still silence. And now I'm almost trying to, like, jog his memory of his firstborn child. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, well, my mom's name is Lisa. Um, <laughs> You know, you were both pretty young, 1985. Uh, and finally, he pipes up and he says, well, how old are you? I say, oh, 25. Uh, my mom was 21 when she had me. You were about 23. He says, well, I don't think I can be your father then because I'm in my 60s now, and that doesn't really match your timeline. <laughs> So it turns out I had the wrong person all along. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, that address and phone number I had been carrying around in the back of my head belonged to someone completely different. And I can only imagine the conversation that that poor man and his wife had later that night. Yeah. Um. As I was preparing this story for you all, I was realizing that it's incomplete. Um, and I thought you all deserved a different ending. So I returned to my Google searching, and this time I found a, a man with the same name, but at a different address and a different phone number. Actually not too far from the one I had tried six years ago. 
So one morning, I took a couple deep breaths, and I dialed. Um, this time, a man picked up, and in a voice not too dissimilar from my own, he said, Hi, this is Kent. So in case you're wondering, that side of my family is from Ireland and Germany. I now know I have a family health history of glaucoma and skin cancer. And I have two other half-siblings and six step-siblings. So now, on the eve of my 31st birthday, I'm thinking back to the end of this very first phone conversation with my biological father. He says, I just want you to know that I love you and I think of you often. Actually, happy early birthday. And so now, uh, I, I guess I'm just wondering if I really believe that you can love someone just because you share the same DNA, especially because anywhere I've ever been, I've created my own family. Most recently, tucked between the mountains and the trees and with a black Labrador and the Knudsen Lombardo family. Thanks so much. Tell me you'll always go before me, shine against the solemn great. Tell me the season's almost over. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on November 9th, 2016 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Family Matters. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. Be the last to let you go So tell me you'll always go Before me shine against The solemn great Tell me the season's almost over I can't wait Our next speaker tonight is Manny Gillian Manny appreciates the family that he has built At the University of Alaska Southeast he is a graduate of Juno Douglas High School and owes a lot to his high school teachers who made, motivated him and taught Manny many things that have carried him through education and life. God bless. Please welcome Manny to the stage. Hello, everybody. Um, thanks for having me, uh, Mudrooms. And uh, give me the opportunity to share a story here um, and build community. My parents immigrated from Mexico when they were all when they were both very young. Um, my dad immigrated when he was um, 15 years old, and my mom when she was 19 years old. My dad, growing up in Mexico for those first 15 years, he didn't really have very good influences, um, good role models, and people to look up to. Um, and so that's a lot of reason why he um, decided to come um, to the United States. Um, it was because he wanted a better future. And my mom, I, I can always count on my mom. Uh, she came when she was 19 years old and for similar reasons is why she came. Um, she was helping out a lot of brothers and sisters and her parents um, with uh, bills and um, in Mexico, it seems like um, a one step forward is kind of like two steps backwards. 
And so you're always kind of trying to catch up. When my dad immigrated, he had family to arrive to. And so it made the transition a little bit easier. Um, my mom didn't have um, that blessing. So it was a little more difficult, but um, it made them who they are. For my mom, when she was coming over, she took a bus from her hometown in Michoacan. Along the way, she met two other uh, girls. They stayed together. And they didn't talk about that they were going to the other side, to the United States, but they kind of got the idea. And when they finally made it to Tijuana, um, the bus driver asked uh, my mom where she was going, and she said she was going to visit a, a relative there. And so they got off, and the two girls asked my mom uh, if she was actually visiting a relative or she was going to the United States, and that it was okay that my mom could tell them because they're going to the United States too. And so my mom said, yeah, yeah, I'm going. The other two girls and my mom, when they got off the bus, um, the guys saying, hey, I'm the guy that you've been talking to, and come with me. And when it wasn't really the guy, but they stayed together, and they all each called the person um, that were, was to cross them to the other side, um, a coyote, uh, a coyote. The first the two girls um, called, and their guys didn't answer. And so my mom finally called, and he answered, and my mom said that she was here in Tijuana and um, that she, she's ready to get picked up. And so the guy was like, okay. And he came and um, picked up my mom's other two friends that she had made along the way, and they said that they would stick together. And so they drove to a hotel. They stayed in that room, all three of them together. They started off in the morning and it was about 10 in the day, or in the night, I guess, in the night, and um, someone knocks on the door and says, Gloria Orozco, and that's my mom's name. And that's when she knew that it was her turn. She, that's the last time she saw those two friends, and she remembers her, those girls standing at the door of the hotel and just saying bye. Um, and from there, she got a job um, working in fields and factories, um, and she met my dad in California. Um, my dad, he, he got help from an uncle, and um, so his transition was a little bit easier. Um, my dad, again, since he had a rough childhood, he, he wasn't able to uh, make connections with good role models in California, and so, um, my mom and my dad, after building relationship and um, love, um, they moved to Washington. And from there, that's where I'm born. My uncles, my dad's brothers were there. And, but when you're young, you kind of you want to do things that probably aren't really right. And so um, that's what really was going on. And so we came over to Alaska when I was one year old. And I'm the youngest of four. I, I see how some of my uncles and relatives that started off with my uh, mom and dad um, in California, and they might not be doing very well, and a lot of the times they come to my mom and dad for advice. A lot of times relatives come and visit us here, and um, 
because they hear that my parents are doing good here and um, all my brothers and sisters graduated from high school here and um, my oldest brother is in the military. Um, he works in Was uh, lives in Wasilla and I'm just, I'm just grateful to um, be in the presence of this community right here and for showing me um, a lot, a lot. And um, if it wasn't for the perseverance of my parents and um, the, the future that they wanted, uh, I wouldn't be who I am today. And um, I'm really appreciative. So thank you for taking the time and um, letting me share a little bit about um, um, what I've experienced with this beautiful community. I'm a UES student and I'm not exactly sure what I want for my career, but I know I wanna come back and I wanna make sure that kids have similar experience so they feel um, the urge to want to express to the, back to the community how much they've helped uh, me and my family um, taking us in. Um, and so thank you very much, Juno community and Mudrooms. Our next speaker is Tom Cosgrove. Tom loves to listen to and tell a good story. And he's told, and he's, told he's always been that way. He thinks his family may be the reason why. Please welcome Tom to the stage. I think that's right. Good evening. I'm from a large Midwestern Irish Catholic family. I've got three brothers and four sisters. My wife, Mila, and I, we have two kids. <laughs> I don't know how the hell my parents did it. <laughs> I mean, you know, we think our life here in Juneau is hectic, but when I was growing up, it was like mild chaos that was always about ready to spin out of control. And I'm also from a large extended family. I've got 24 first cousins. So there always seemed to be more than 10 people at the house. Meals were always a bit of a scene. My mother, Bobby, she really wasn't much of a cook. She, she was more about pushing out large quantities of food with a minimal amount of effort. And, and when we kids, when we went to college, we were like we raved about the food. But what the meals lacked in quality, they made up for in stimulating conversation. We ate as a nuclear family almost every night. And oftentimes we had guests, friends and relatives. But sometimes those guests were people that my mother, Bobby, had collected. Strays, chance encounters, people in need. I mean, this is who my mother was. The woman could talk to anyone. She she was trusting, she was curious, she was very upfront. People were drawn to her. I mean, she carried on a long-term relationship with a piano teacher that lived in Carnegie Hall, a woman that she had met at a lunch counter while visiting New York City in the 1960s. <laughs> and then there was the year that the entire family of Australians showed up for dinner, or for Christmas one year. Just some people she met along the way. 
But she wasn't the only family member that brought strangers to the dinner table. My sister Trish was an actress, uh, worked on din dinner theater for years, primarily playing sassy teenagers in Neil Simon plays. Now, the dinner theater circuit was such that it hit multiple cities for five to six week runs and usually, uh, it, it usually featured a washed up star from yesteryear. When Trish came through to Kansas City, our hometown, she would often invite cast members over to the family house for a home-cooked meal and a bit of conversation. Now, most of these people were unknowns like Trish, but some of them were names like Chip and Ernie from My Three Sons. <laughs> and I, this was a 60s television sitcom, for those of you that don't know. Uh, <laughs> Stanley and Barry Livingston were played brothers on the show, and they were brothers in real life. But they had never made a dime off the decades of reruns, so they were doing dinner theater and having uh, dinner at my parents' house. But the most memorable dinner guest of that era was Eleanor Donahue. Now, Eleanor played Princess, the oldest daughter in Father Knows Best, a 50s television sitcom. <clears throat> she was also Andy Griffith's love interest, uh, Ellie the Pharmacist. She later was in uh, Pretty Woman and the uh, TV show Friends, but then she was doing dinner theater. At our dinner table, Eleanor was guarded, almost withdrawn. She just stayed on the peripheral of the conversation. But over the course of the evening, she really warmed to my mother, Bobby, and they hit it off. They were at the dinner table long after the rest of us had taken off. My mother had missed her opportunity as an, as an education, but she was extremely well-read, and she could uh, carry on a conversation on a wide variety of subjects. Eleanor, she was, a, uh, she was a reader, too, and they bonded over books. And the relationship didn't end with dinner. Over the intervening weeks, they, uh, Eleanor and Bobby, they went to lunch. Now, Eleanor must have really trusted Bobby, because as that run drew to an end, Eleanor asked if I would take her to the cast party. You know, you don't go anywhere without an escort. So I was thrilled. But the moment that Eleanor got in the car, she informed me that there was going to be absolutely no funny business. I mean, really? I mean, the woman was 20 years older than me. She was over 40. <laughs> I mean, sure, we had the Mrs. Robinson back then, but cougars weren't really a thing. <laughs> the cast party was at a Greek restaurant named Tasso's, which was known for its gregarious proprietor, who was generous with the ouzo. The walls were all uh, covered with framed photos of Tasso with local and national celebrities. It was a destination back in the day. Well, the evening was nice, but uneventful. Uh, I stayed away from the Uzo and Eleanor. <laughs> but the funny thing was, years later when I was living in Chicago, a guy I knew said, who was just got back from Kansas City said, you won't believe it, I was eating at this Greek restaurant in Kansas City, and there, right on our booth, there's a framed photo of you and some woman. I had made the wall of fame. Eleanor stayed in touch with Bobby 
um, after she left town. They exchanged phone calls and letters, and, uh, and that went on for quite a long time, at long after Eleanor returned to L.A. But as these things go, uh, they lost touch over time. But you see, Eleanor was just another stray that my mother had taken in. Bobby had told me that she felt that Eleanor was lonely and needed a friend. After all, the entertainment industry, it's, you know, any, everyone is not as they appear to be, and everyone has an agenda. I mean, if someone's nice to you, they want something. But Eleanor had sensed at our dinner table what others had discovered was that Bobby was without guile. She had no agenda other than to connect to people. Empathy was Bobby's superpower. My mother passed away two years ago, and I am trying to solidify memories in order to keep her close. They say that uh, the more you revisit a memory, the longer it stays alive, but uh, you know what, you just can't revisit them all. So this encounter with Eleanor Donahue serves as a reminder of all the wide variety of characters that my mother had befriended and brought into the fold. This is one of the selected moments that I hold of my mother. Thank you. Our next and final speaker this evening is Mike Levine. Mike just celebrated the 14th anniversary of his move to Alaska. He came here originally to escape the fame, paparazzi, and throngs of adoring supermodels that went along with being the first ever professional baseball player, astronaut, senator, fashion model. <laughs> now he spends most of his time laughing at potty jokes with his son when he's not making fart noises. Mike works on fisheries and energy issues for Oceana and tries to get outside. This is Mike's second appearance at Mudrooms, and it's probably not a coincidence that farts have come up in both times. Please welcome Michael to the stage. It's two growlers. Thanks, Steve, and I'll hereby offer to write anybody's bio who wants to speak next time. So uh, my grandmother turned 100 years old a few weeks ago. She was born in 1916, uh, not quite long enough ago to have seen the Cubs' previous World Series victory, <laughs> but four years before women were given the right to vote, and I will admit that when I figured that out, I'd hoped it would be a little more important a factoid today after yesterday than it turns out to be. My grandmother was born in Detroit, one of 13 children, 11 of whom lived to adulthood. And though not the youngest, my grandmother has outlived all 10 of her siblings and all 11 of their spouses. My grandparents were married for almost 65 years. And in all that time, I doubt my grandmother ever won an argument with my grandfather. In, in fact, I doubt anyone ever did. I've often said that if asked to write their life story, I would call it, God damn it, Pearl, a, a love story. Together they had five kids, more than a dozen grandkids, and now more than a dozen great-grandchildren. At 100 years old, 
my grandmother still lives on her own. She still sends birthday cards, anniversary cards, emails. She even had a Facebook account for a while until, like most millennials, she decided it wasn't worth it. <laughs> As you can tell, I love my grandmother dearly. I am grateful for all the time I got to spend with her growing up. I'm glad that my son knows her, knows that she loves him, and hopefully will have memories of her for his whole life. But this story isn't about any of that. In fact, it's about something my son will never experience, my grandmother's cookies. And before you go think I'm gonna tell you my grandmother had some great secret cookie recipe and belonged on the cover of Jewish Chefs Monthly, remember she grew up one of 11 kids during the Depression in Detroit. And that experience, as it did for all those people in that generation, covered every, uh, colored everything about her life, including her cookies. And that's not to say that there weren't lots of cookies. There were lots and lots and lots of cookies. Every time you went to my grandmother's house for dinner, for a holiday, for lunch, after school, there were cookies. And they were always in those uh, steel coffee containers, either one pound or three pounds. And I have no idea where my grandmother got that many of those kind of containers from. My grandparents never drank that much coffee. And I always imagined there were people all over the DC, Maryland, Virginia area collecting these coffee canisters from my grandmother so she could fill them up. And uh, for those of us who remember when it first started, there were three kinds of my grandmother's cookies. Um, the first kind we called sprinkle cookies, and I, I think they were my grandmother's effort at sugar cookies, but there really wasn't very much sugar in them. They were kind of like white biscuits with sprinkles on top. And she made a variant of them with the thumbprint in them, you know, and a little bit of jam, but it was basically the same cookie. The, the second kind were brownies, and I don't remember very much about the brownies except they were to be avoided at all costs. If, if you got to the bottom of one of those containers and there was only brownies left, you just went and looked for the next one, right? And, and eventually they, they went away. My younger cousins don't remember my grandmother ever making brownies. They were replaced with these little peanut butter balls with Rice Krispies in them, but they're not part of the original cookie triumvirate. They're sort of a latecomer to the situation. The third kind, and the kind the story's really about, were chocolate chip cookies. And these cookies, I can tell you, having watched my grandmother make them, she rolled out the dough, cut them up, put them in the cookie sheet, put them in the oven, and they came out looking exactly the same. They didn't move on the cookie sheet. And, and the only discernible ingredients were um, walnuts and chocolate chips. What went into the cookie part, I haven't any idea. The only thing I'm sure of is that they didn't have meat in them. My grandparents kept kosher, and cookies were served with dessert. So I know there was no meat in the cookies, but there could have been anything else in the cookie part of it. Um, and they, they were not too sweet, not too healthy, kind of like a biscuit with some walnuts and chocolate chips in it. But they were the cookies we ate growing up, and we loved them. It's the chocolate chip cookies in particular, I mean, there's part of my childhood, I, I can still taste what they taste like. Um, and eventually my grandmother went into the cookie distribution business. She sent cookies to me in college, in law school. She sent them here. There's maybe some people here who've had some of my grandmother's cookies. Always in the steel canisters and always with the request that we please bring back the coffee containers and she'd refill it. She gave them to my dad at work. He'd eat them with his coffee in the afternoons. And uh, until one day, about seven or eight years ago, my grandmother in her 90s announced that after decades and decades of making cookies, she was no longer going to do it. That set off a family panic. Everybody ran scrambling for their coffee canisters to bring them over and get them filled up. And we all parceled them out, my dad at his desk eating only one cookie with his afternoon coffee instead of two, and eventually they were all gone. And my dad took this harder than most of the rest of the family. As the oldest child, I think he has a rightful claim to have, eating, to have eaten more of those cookies than any of the rest of us. And he no longer had anything to eat with his afternoon uh, coffee. 
So he asked my stepmom, Jan, uh, hey, you know, would you mind trying to recreate grandma's chocolate chip, or mom's chocolate chip cookies? And my stepmom, being a good sport and a good baker, said, sure. So she went to my grandmother and said, uh, you know, mom, David would like me to try to recreate the cookies. Do you have a recipe? And my grandmother, who had made these cookies for, you know, 70 years, said, yeah, well, not so much. Uh, I always follow the one on the back of that uh, chocolate chip package. So she pointed my, my stepmom to the back of a Nestle's Toll House chocolate chip package. My stepmom, being skeptical but a good sport again, went home, got the ingredients, put in some, made that same recipe with some walnuts, pulled them out of the oven, gave them to my dad, and let me tell you, I could hear the groan of disgust all the way from Maryland to here because these cookies were sweet, they were flaky, they were buttery. I mean, they were everything you'd want a cookie to be unless you wanted my grandmother's chocolate chip cookies. So my dad said, well, it's pretty good effort, but could you try again? Maybe a few more walnuts, a little less sugar, you, you know, some more flour or something. So my stepmama, she did it. Yeah, pulled them out again, you know, looked like cookies, flour, flaky, beautiful. My dad, not that impressed again. Now, apparently there was a third iteration of this trial and it's never been spoken of. I don't know what happened. I just know that my stepmom was alleviated of any further cooker responsibility until it became time to celebrate my grandmother's 100th birthday. And there was no way we could have this celebration without some cookies. So my stepmom Jan and my Aunt Barbara got together. They talked to my grandmother, and I don't know what ingredients they bought or incantations they said or recipes they followed, but they managed to concoct something that bore some resemblance to my grandmother's chocolate chip cookies. And we had them at the party, and everybody got to taste them. And, you know, they were good. Um, they weren't like the cookies we had growing up, though, and, and nobody could ever tell you what was missing. But it did, um, it was served as a, a good reminder of the fleeting things that, that we enjoy in life. And so I'm, I'm glad to be able to share those cookies since I can't actually physically share them with you, at least in my memory and in my spirit. And to be able to tell my grandmother, I love you, Grandma. I love your cookies. And I wish you were here to listen to me talk about them. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were reported on November 9th, 2016. The theme for the evening was Family Matters. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Sewing, Kristen Stouter, and Sarah Hannon. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night.